morning. We have a, a rather amazing passage this morning from 2 Samuel, and I, I invite you all to open that up. I do not know what page it's on, but it's uh, 2 Samuel at the very beginning, and um, we're going to look at this lament the king, or soon-to-be king David writes over um, Saul, this man who has been out to kill him for some time now. But to really understand this, we've got to go back and figure out what is going on. It's kind of a difficult place to jump into Scripture, and so let's, let's bring it back a little bit. And we've been reading through 1 Samuel, and now we're in 2 Samuel, and what we have seen is the story of David. It begins actually with Saul, and Saul being anointed king, and quickly in his kingship turning from the Lord. And so Saul, um, I mean Samuel the prophet, through the power of God, seeks out David, this little shepherd boy, and anoints him as the next king of Israel. David then, and we heard this last week, goes out to find his brothers who are on the front lines of the battle with the Philistines. And David finds them, and, and, and there in the middle of this is this big hulk of a man, Goliath. Not only was he big and scary, he had a really loud mouth. And so every morning Goliath would get up and taunt the Jews and say, Come and beat me, and none of them could or none of them dared even to try. And this shepherd boy who's been anointed king, David, says, Well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Walks out there in front of this giant man with his slingshot and a pebble, knocks him square between the eyes, and falls this giant dead on the battlefield. And there's an interesting refrain as, as Saul and David and the army marched back into Jerusalem victorious over the Philistines. The women of the city come out to greet them, and they say, How mighty and great is Saul, he kills thousands. How mighty and great is David. He kills tens of thousands. And the seed of jealousy is sown even deeper in the king, Saul. David goes on to live with Saul in his palace, befriends Saul's son, Jonathan. They are the closest of friends. And Saul becomes all the more bitter at David, tries to kill him several times. And finally, David flees the palace into the wilderness. And Saul, this jealous king who has turned from the Lord, seeks after David. He seeks after David. He wants to kill him. His jealousy rages and burns so much that he can't stop at anything short of death of this future king of Israel. And so, several times Saul is this close. And and what happens, actually, is Saul is a little unwitting. He's, he's he's, He's not quite very sly trying to get David. And so... He's pursuing him one time, and, and Saul goes into a cave to rest. This is in 1 Samuel 24. Saul goes into this cave to rest, not actually checking the cave out before he falls asleep. There's no sleeping bear in there. There's only the sleeping future king of Israel, David. And so David wakes up, and he finds Saul asleep. And so here's this man who's been trying to kill David for years, and he's sleeping in front of David, and David's got a sword. And what does he do? He cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and leaves him sleeping. Saul wakes up the next morning and, and he goes off and he says, probably thinks it's pretty weird that a piece of his robe is missing. Now can you imagine the terror in Saul's heart when he meets David and David says, hey, you missing this, buddy? <laughs> can 
can you imagine? But David refuses, refuses to kill Saul. Why? Because Saul is God's anointed king of Israel. Saul promises, David, you're you're far more righteous than I. I will pursue you no longer. And they go their separate ways. And the next thing we know, Saul is chasing David again. Again, Saul falls asleep. David gets wind of where he's sleeping and sneaks in with a couple of his men to the campsite. All the soldiers of Saul are asleep and David is standing over him with Saul's own spear yet again. And yet again, David refuses to slay Saul. He refuses. Because Saul is the anointed king of Israel. He says this in 1 Samuel 26.9, talking to a servant about Saul. Do not destroy him. Do not destroy Saul. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David knows that he has been called to be the righteous king of Israel. And to go out and and slay and destroy this man who's been anointed by God, for better or worse, as the king of Israel, he knows that he cannot stand before the Lord in judgment if he does that. So he refuses to kill him, even though it means his life is in jeopardy. Even though it means he'll spend who knows how many more years running from Saul. And so what has happened in the last couple chapters of 1 Samuel is really is. You should, you should read it. It's kind of an amazing novel and the suspense builds. David, now at this point, has, has decided that the best place to hide from Saul is with the Philistines, these arch enemies of Israel. And so he's more or less a mercenary who goes out and fights small battles for the Philistines. And he's doing that and, and this big battle comes up, the battle of, um, what do we call it, Gilueth. And here it's the Jewish people coming against the Philistines. And, you know, this is a hard situation for David. These are his people. He's been fighting other people up until this point. These are his people, but, but you know, he submits to, to the king of the Philistines. But when the king of the Philistines decides who he's going to send into battle, he's, he's not sure he can trust David on this one. And so he sends David home to his headquarters in, in Ziklag. And he prepares, the Philistines prepare to fight this massive battle with the Israelites. In the meantime, David is in Ziklag and uh, this other enemy of the Philistines, enemy of the Jews, the Amalekites come. They raid the city. David chases them down. He kills them all. And he, he effectively destroys this people, the Amalekites. Now here's what's interesting about that. The Amalekites are the very people that Saul refused to destroy some 15 chapters earlier. Saul was disobedient. He didn't destroy these people. And so that's where, where, where he turned from God. And David is kind of wrapping this up. He's taking care of the Amalekites. In the meantime, the Philistines and the Jews are going at it, and Saul is killed. And Jonathan is killed. And so we get into 2 Samuel, where this messenger brings news of their death to David. What would you do if you were David? Your arch enemy has just been killed? You didn't have to fear for your life anymore? 
you could begin taking your place as the rightful king of Israel, what would you do? What does David do? In verse 11, then David, he gets this message, David took off his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with them. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. There's no rejoicing. There's no celebratory victory. There's no dancing in the street. David is weeping over the death of Saul. And it's interesting to know what happens to this messenger. This messenger who brought David news that Saul was dead um, actually said, I killed Saul. I happened to be on the battlefield, which is a strange place to happen to be, but he happened to be there. He saw that Saul maybe had fallen on his sword but was not dead, and so this man claims to have killed Saul. And he took his crown and he took his armband, these royal symbols, and he brought them to David. He's probably seeking some sort of favor in David's eyes. Hey, look, I killed him. What happens to this man? Verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? This man answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. So David not only mourns the death of Saul, but he casts judgment over this man who killed the king of Israel. He said, You've killed the anointed king of Israel. That's punishable by death. And so this, is, this, this story is really hard for us. I mean, it's really hard, especially in America. I, 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 don't, I don't think we totally grasp it, but to mourn over the death of this man who was your enemy, who was trying to kill you. Let's go on. So, so David writes this poem that we read today. And he doesn't just write this poem and sing it. He actually instructs it to be written down. It says in verse um, 18, David said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So this is an official poem of grieving for the nation of Israel over the loss of their king. We won't go through it line by line, but there's some important things to note. There's this refrain that keeps going over and over again. How the mighty have fallen. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And so it goes on. And David says, part of this lament is, far be it for the enemies of God to to dance and, and joy over this. And so he says, let not the Philistines know about this. Don't let them go out dancing in the streets because their enemy has been killed. Saul, verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. 25, once again, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. 
I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. These are profound words. This is a man in deep mourning over the loss of his good friend, Jonathan, but even over the loss of of Saul, this man who is out to kill him. What we see, what we see in this, in David's actions, is that he is the righteous king of Israel. The righteous king. Where Saul turned from the Lord, where Saul sought blood, where Saul tried to kill the Lord's anointed, David refused to do it because the Spirit of God was upon him. And God honored this and rewarded this. And if you read ahead a couple chapters, in 2 Samuel 7, David has defeated all of these armies who are still out to get him. He's, he's consolidated his power. He's marched into Jerusalem. And he says, God, look at all these great things you've done for me. Let me build a temple to you, a place for your glory to reside, a place of worship for your people. And God says, no. David, that is not for you. You've been so faithful and so obedient. Let me reward you. Let me seat you and your ancestors on the throne of Israel forever. Forever. And so that is David's reward. That is, that is David's um, gift because he sought after God, that God saw in this man a righteous king. He saw in this man a righteous line of kings. And so he made them king over Israel forever. But, even David was not perfect. Because one chapter later, he sees a bathing beauty, Bathsheba. Knowing that her husband was at war, he invites her over to his place. They have a child together. And David says, well, we've got to cover this up. And so he tries to find a way to have her husband killed. The very thing he refused to do to Saul, he's very willing to do with the husband of this woman he's fallen in love with. And so he has Uriah killed. And so even David, even David cannot do what God had called him to do. So, what, what, what are we to get from this? And, and we'll go back to this poem. The first thing I want to say is this. The, the refrain of the poem is how the mighty have fallen. And the first point that I want you all to remember, these are short points, by the way, I know it's hot. The first point is this. The mighty is fallen. Okay? The mighty is fallen. We've got to look at our Old Testament and try to get more out of it than a bunch of heroes and a bunch of examples, okay? So if I were to stay up here and say to you, you know, David is really somebody, other than that whole Bathsheba thing, um, you really should try to be like David. Try to be like David. And so when your enemies are facing pain or when they're facing sorrow, be like David and pray for them. I can tell you that. Can you do that? 
Can you be like David? I'll tell you, y'all are all perfectly capable of being like David when it comes to Bathsheba. But when it comes to this, you're not. I'm just saying you're perfectly capable. And, and you laugh, and it's kind of funny, but you know, okay? You know. But when it comes to praying for your enemies or mourning their death, you can't be like David. And so there's got to be something more. There's got to be somebody maybe who's more faithful and more righteous. And so I say to you, the mighty is fallen. If you remember that great passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and instead... I'm paraphrasing now, made himself a man, made himself obedient to God, even to death on a cross. The mighty, eternal God in Jesus Christ came down and walked on this earth and died on a cross. The mighty seemed to have fallen. But somehow, in some way, in God's God's world, in, in reality, the high and mighty of this world are actually very lowly. And the way to become mighty is to humble yourself. Jesus Christ humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, back to Philippians. Therefore, God has raised Him and highly exalted Him so that in the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. become mighty friends, Jesus fell. He became lowly so that God would make him mighty. And so the first thing we see is David laments this and he, he looks upon the death of this king and the death of his friend and he says, wow, how the mighty have fallen. We look at Jesus Christ and it sure looks like, it sure looks like the mighty have fallen yet again. Except God raises him from the dead. And so what can you expect then? If, if this is one of our principles, that God is, is holy and He expresses that holiness through humility, then you can look at this world. You can look at the high and the mighty in this world. These things that rule over us, that oppress us. And, and maybe it's actual physical rulers, or maybe it's just the idols of our hearts. The sins of our hearts. These things that, that desire us, that, that, that make us seek after them and try to be high and try to be mighty on this earth. That These things have no power. The power is in the humility of Jesus Christ. So that kind of brings us then to, to our second point. This mighty one who has fallen and been raised from the dead, just as David is mourning for his, I won't say his arch enemy because David refused to let Saul be his enemy, But David is mourning for this man who would stop at nothing but destroying him. Jesus Christ mourns for each one of us. He mourns for us. He weeps for us, friends, because we are effectively separated from him. Saul and David were miles apart, totally separated. Saul was out to kill David, to persecute him. We killed Jesus. We put him on the cross. And yet he mourns for us. 
He weeps for us because He knows that we are separated from Him. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, Paul tells us in Romans that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet separated from God, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us so that we wouldn't be enemies anymore. And so He weeps when He looks at us and He sees us in our sorrow and our suffering. When He sees us separated from God, He is weeping for us. And even for those of us who know the Lord, who know Jesus Christ, this world is still plagued by sin. And so when we experience that profound suffering, that profound loss, Jesus Christ weeps for us because He's been there, friends. He's been to the depths of hell. And so He knows where we are and He is weeping for us. And finally, the Mighty One invites us to mourn. He, he does. This is We're finally getting there. He does invite us to be like David. He invites us to weep for those who are not part of the body of Jesus Christ. He invites us to weep for those who hate us, to weep for those who persecute us, to mourn for them. And so while, while in our human nature we sit here and we think, man, God really needs to give it to that person. And, and we might even be right. God says, that's my problem. You're invited to weep because these people don't know Jesus. They don't know the judgment of God is on them. They don't know that they are out of the family of God, that they are enemies of God. And we weep for that, friends. We weep for that. If you love Jesus, you know you've been there. And you weep for those who are not reconciled to Him. So are you weeping? Do you look at this world and do you weep for it, for the state it's in, for the status of those who don't know Jesus Christ? And if you're weeping for them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will you go out to them? Will you reach them? Will you introduce them to what we know? That the Mighty One has fallen for us. Has been raised from the dead. And invites us to join Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the Heidi and Mighty One. We thank You, Lord, that You've shown us the way of the Mighty, which is actually humility and death. I pray, Lord, that You would help us to die to ourselves. Help us to receive Your cross, receive the weeping and mourning that You pour out for us. And may, be we raised, may we be raised from the dead with You. And may we have a heart for those who do not know You. And may we weep for them and be so motivated to go out and proclaim Your good news to them. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.